And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very happy that we can circle back to a topic that we actually first explored last week on the morning show, namely a brand new play commissioned by the Carthage College Theater Department, a play called The Handbook by Laura Shellhart. And this is a play that springs out of the real-life experience of a number of cheerleaders for various NFL teams who, because of various kinds of mistreatment and disrespect, uh, found themselves compelled to bring lawsuits against their respective teams. My understanding is roughly a third of NFL teams have had such lawsuits brought against them by uh, one or more of their cheerleaders. And so out of that controversy has uh, sprung this new play called The Handbook, which tells this story on stage. And uh, the play actually opened last weekend, but there are performances of it this weekend as well. And we have with us in the studio Neil Sharnick from the theater faculty at Carthage, who is the director of this play, uh, this production, and with us as well a very special guest of Carthage's theater department, namely Kristen Ann Ware. And she is a former cheerleader of the Miami Dolphins. And uh, she is one such cheerleader who uh, felt like she had to bring a lawsuit against the Dolphins uh, for reasons that we will get into through the course of this conversation. Kristen Ann Ware uh, is on the campus of Carthage meeting students and is going to be present for both of the performances this weekend, tonight and tomorrow night, available to uh, answer questions and so on. And she has had some contact with with the uh, playwright and cast and so on uh, through the course of the preparation of this production. So we're really happy to have both of you here, Neil Sharnick and Kristen Ann Ware. We welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you. Good to have you here. <laughs> Kristen Ann Ware is originally from Texas, and so she has this, Texan. W- this wonderful accent. <laughs> and uh, it's just great to have you here for all kinds of different reasons. Neil, briefly, uh, tell us, in a sense, the connection that has already existed between Kristen Ann Ware and, and this project. Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the play uh, is commissioned by Carthage, the handbook by Laura Shellhart, and... Um, Shortly after we had, I think it would be shortly after we got our first draft and uh, had initially cast the show, one of my students, actually, Ella Spolstra, who was here in studio last week, uh, reached out through social media to some of the, the cheerleaders whose stories parallel those of characters in our play, who were the inspiration for the characters in our play. And she reached out, I know, to Bailey Davis, and who's who's the inspiration for her character, Lainey, and also to Kristen Ann Ware. And, um, and, and the, the women she reached out to, the people she contacted, were so generous. You know, Kristen and Bailey in particular, Kristen had just um, uh, was very happy to talk about her experience, to tell her story, to find out more about what we were doing, and to, uh, to be a, an encouragement and help and support in telling the stories that we're trying to tell. So she made herself available to Laura, who I know chatted with her for hours about the, <laughs> about the play, and to the cast. And we talked about an hour and a half through FaceTime. We, we, we chatted with Kristen as well. And um, we decided as a department we were going to do what it took to get these women here. So last weekend, uh, Bailey Davis, former New Orleans Saint 
sensation, and um, Erica Wilkins, former uh, Dallas Cowboys cheerleader, as well as uh, Lauren Harrington, who uh, is the only one who's local news, the woman who brought a class action suit against the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, they all were in attendance. They all joined us for the show and for talkbacks afterwards. And it's been uh, profoundly moving and exciting to uh, to be able to meet these women, for our audiences to get to see the the real faces behind these stories. And um, and it's really deepened the experience, I think, for our, our students as well. Marvelous. Mm-hmm. It's great to have you here, Kristen Ann Ware. Neil, one point of, of clarification. Uh, the contact with Laura, the playwright, was yes. that as the play was still taking shape or was the play at that point already written? Um, I'd say the, the play was still taking shape until about dress rehearsal week. Oh, I mean, well, okay. Um, <laughs> one of the real privileges, with, this is the 11th installment in our new play initiative, so we've worked with lots of playwrights from lots of places, but Laura is relatively local. She is a Chicago playwright. She's a member of the faculty at Northwestern, so she was able to be in the room at, you know, once a week, what, twice a week. With some regularity, she came up and joined us for rehearsals so that she could hear the words, you know, from the mouths of the actors and was um, was always happy to modify, edit, to change. She'd hear things and, and uh, was not did not treat her words as precious in any way. She mm-hmm. was she was um, eager to to winnow it down, to clarify, uh, to simplify. And uh, so, no, it was still in process, certainly long after she spoke with Kristen. Very good. So you had a hand in the shaping of this, and that makes this all the more exciting then for us to, to meet you today. Uh, I wish we had time for a really thorough biography. I don't think we really do, of course, but uh, let's begin by just learning a little bit about where you come from originally, aside from the great state of Texas. But uh, what else we should know about you uh, leading up to your your term as a cheerleader with the uh, Miami Dolphins. What mm. do we need to know about Kristen Ann Ware? Oh, goodness. Okay, well, I was born on Shepherd Air Force Base in Texas. And uh, from then, I moved about every two and a half years because mm. my parents were in the military. So um, obviously, as a cheerleader, that was the most extraordinary part was traveling overseas and shaking the hands of the men and women who are in the mm. military. That's that one fr- thing you got to do as a cheerleader. Right. Yeah. And I had no idea that, that was part of it or I was even going to be chosen like as a tour girl. Mm. And so I never had an off season, but I was totally OK with it yeah. because it meant even going to the bases where my father was deployed at. So I got to see his view all those years where I didn't know where he was. And so it was a full circle for me uh, to travel overseas. But growing up, I mean, I was just, you know, an ordinary girl who loved dance. Uh, My mom put me in my first dance class when I was three. Wow. And then I got kicked out of ballet class (laughs) because they said I had too much energy. And Mm. so she put me in hip hop. And I love hip hop class. You can shake it like no tomorrow and, you know, shake what your mama gave you. So from ballet to hip hop, that's quite yes. a quite a leap. <laughs> yes. And then um, just growing up, I played multiple sports, um, mostly basketball and softball. Hmm. Uh, by the time I got ready for college, I got an opportunity for a scholarship for both. And I turned it down to try out for the dance team instead. Oh. Yeah. And I cheered my freshman year of college at Lander University, and then I transferred to the University of South Carolina, 
in Columbia where I was too afraid to try out for the dance or cheerleading mm. team. So people are like, oh, you skipped college and went straight to the NFL. And I was like, sure did. <laughs> but um, even before I ever had a thought of being an NFL cheerleader, I thought that um, I was going to join the military mm. to join the family business. And I had applied to the Coast Guard Academy and I got my degree in marine science for that. So I was in the recruiting office to join the Navy or Coast Guard. And, you know, as much as I wanted to serve and be a part of something that was bigger than me, I knew that joining the military was for the reason to kind of please my father and mm. get the pat on the back from him, which would have been wonderful. But, you know, I chose my own route and I drove the 10 hour drive to Miami and didn't tell anybody, but I tried out for the Miami Dolphins and I was like, there's no way I'm going to make it. And then I freaking made it. Mm -hmm. And they called my name more than once because it was such a shock to me that I made it. <laughs> I mean, they had to call your name. More I mean, than yeah, once. they had. To. <laughs> but yeah, and then I made it and it was an incredible reckoning journey of my faith um, being on the Miami Dolphins squad. Yeah. One question. Uh, so you were a cheerleader in high school? I was. So. Mm -hmm. One of the things that strikes me is how, I mean, cheerleading, certainly, especially at this level, is in it of, in and of itself an athletic endeavor. But you were someone who was not only a cheerleader, but also an athlete mm -hmm. in two other sports. And so it seems to me you, you come at this with a maybe a deeper, richer understanding than, than some cheerleaders where that is their sole role in in yeah. in athletic endeavors cheering athletes on you yourself have been an athlete as mm -hmm. well although let's see and you said in what softball and basket so in basketball there's cheerleaders there. i don't think right. very often in softball games there's so cheerleaders. I, I would play for the girls and then cheer for the boys so ah. i would just have to try to look pretty <laughs> after my basketball game. very good so how did the notion come to you to even apply for the Miami Dolphins? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this, did you see them on TV or was it that they were geographically close to where you were living or yeah. what, why the Miami Dolphins? And also, uh, what about that opportunity was appealing to you? So it was between the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and the Miami Dolphins for me because I was born in Texas and my, all of my family are Dallas Cowboy fans. But I was a marine biologist, and hmm. so I wanted to further that by getting a job, and I had an interview with Noah out in Biscayne in Miami. So I was like, ooh, maybe I can do both dreams. You know, I could ah. be a cheerleader and a scientist at the same time. And so I tried it for the, the dolphins. It was on the coast. It just, you know, seemed like yeah. an adventure to me. And, you know, it's it's the right mammal. I'm a marine biologist. <laughs> let's, let's cheer for the dolphins. There you go. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Tell us what the audition process was like. I mean, oh. or the tryouts or whatever we call it. Intense. Really intense. Um, just shaking to the core. You're competing against a thousand women who, you know, growing up in a small town, my parents always made me feel better by saying, oh, you know those girls in the magazine? They're just fake. And I'm like, <laughs> you lied. Wow. These are real-life walking magazine models. Mm -hmm. Like, they, these women were beautiful. Um, and I felt like there's no comparison. Like, why am I here? Hmm. You know, and I never thought that a girl like me could ever even be on a team like that. Um, 
they're just gorgeous. <laughs> and not only that is they're talented. Hmm. And me having just the raw talent of dance and being more well-rounded, you know, with other sports, it like you said, it wasn't my main outlet. I had many outlets. Right. And you were, in some respects, probably a latecomer to this, I mean, compared to some who've done nothing but cheerleading. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, you only have to be turning 18 by the time, you know, the first game starts in order to be on this team so I'm coming in after college so I'm 23 Hmm. and I'm going into so I was much older um, coming in and it was a late start but that doesn't mean the nerves are any less you know it is a long process of vigorous workouts and interviews um, being questioned about the football history and so many things it stretches you to your limit for sure so you did this almost as a lark, no expectation that you would be taken. And then, in fact, you were selected. You, was, you said they had to say your name twice. Yeah. So it didn't even <laughs> sink in. So what a, what, a, what a moment that had to be yeah. in, in, in your life. So when you were, in a sense, accepted by or hired by, whatever mm-hmm. we want to say, the mm-hmm. Dolphins, what were you, in a sense, signing on for? What, what was your commitment to the Dolphins mm-hmm. at that point? Well, in my heart, you know, they had saw something in me that I had yet to see in myself. So um, automatically I was in a position of thankfulness, Um, which, you know, in the end can kind of hurt you on a team like that in a toxic environment where Mm. they kind of push to you that you must be thankful and you must have a grateful heart for them because look at what we've done for you. Ah, right. You know, so it's kind of a manipulation Sure, a a sense of indebtedness that can be unhealthy exactly especially if exploited right (laughs) that too (laughs) but also my position was just the passion of dance Uh, I wanted to spread joy and what better way to be an NFL cheerleader um, be a part of a team which I've always respected and loved um, to have to be a witness to upbuild other people and uplift other women and, um, yeah, to visit the hospitals, do community work, go overseas, like all these amazing things, so many opportunities. So that was my position of uh, being a cheerleader was I love dance, and now I get to spread joy and get paid while doing it. <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with Kristen Ann Ware, who for a time was a cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins of the National Football League. And... Uh, Sad to say, uh, the joy gave way to other feelings, certainly mixed feelings, maybe for a while, and, and, and then some, some, some real trouble, some real heartache. Explain at what point, after you had signed on with the Dolphins, that you began to have some regrets or some concerns. Mm-hmm. Well, I think like any other cheerleader, which I can only speak for myself, but when joining the team, you're automatically presented with red flags. And what happens is your excitement for being one out of 32 or less girls that are called out of a thousand, you're blinded, you know, going in. You're like, oh, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. And you, you excuse these red flags, and what was once shocking to you now becomes the norm. Hmm. And so this kind of culture of mistreatment or, um, you know, putting other women down is what you're living in. Mm. And the moment for me, though, you know, with all these red flags, my moment of knowing, hey, this this may be my time to walk away from this if I can find the courage was when respecting respecting my authority turned into disrespecting my faith. 
you know, and that that was the moment for me that I had to decide what was more important, being a cheerleader for the Dolphins or being a cheerleader for Christ, mm-hmm. you know. And so I had to make that decision, and I ultimately chose to walk away. And can you just be a little more specific about the way in which you felt like you were being compelled to make a choice? What was, what was being asked of you that felt mm-hmm. contrary to your faith as a Christian? Yeah, so... Um, I got baptized um, right before my third year. And with I the was, Dolphins? With the Dolphins, okay. yeah. So I'm going into my third year auditions because you had to re-audition every year. You were never guaranteed a spot, which kind of kept you on your toes. <laughs> Always had butterflies as a performer. And I got baptized, and then I walk into my interview room, and they had brought up the fact that they had seen that I got, just got baptized, and they begin to tell me that I was not allowed to mention God that I can't put any type of faith or Jesus Christ on my social media page, that it had to be a secret. And to further that, they brought up my true love weights ring about how I was waiting for marriage to give myself away. And they said that I had taken something that was once upon a time pure and beautiful and I had made it dirty and that I needed to develop into a real woman. And so this all turned into a very toxic, hostile work environment where I'm now being nitpicked at little things, um, you know, you don't have enough lipstick on, or you mm. gained a pound, or your hair's not curly enough, you know, all these things, and it's, they're kind of like mocking it in a way where it turned into, well, y- you look too happy, you need to look more sexy, like act like you're making love to the camera, and you know, so comments started to change towards me, Wow. and just the, the mistreatment overall, uh, the vindictiveness. And, and they were treating you differently than they had before your baptism, before your mm-hmm. faith became such an important part of who you were. Exactly. So you you feel like the, the story really changed mm-hmm. from that point on in a way that felt yeah. very unfair to you. Yes. Uh, did you feel any affinity? Uh, that's the wrong way to ask it. Uh, mm-hmm. Were there others, other cheerleaders, who shared any of these concerns and or were sympathetic to your concern? I mean, did you feel comfortable being open about what you were experiencing with your fellow cheerleaders? Or by and large, was this something uh, that you were, in a sense, experiencing on your own? Yeah. I mean, I definitely felt alone, you know, through the whole process. You're in an environment where you do not feel safe. Uh, You don't know who to trust, Uh, especially as a woman getting gaslighted, the most terrifying thing as a woman is when you get to the point in your life where you can't even trust your own intuition anymore. Mm. And you start to question, is this real? Is that not real? Did, did they mean that? You know, you, you want to see the good in everyone, and then now you're doubting everything around you. And the NFL being the biggest organization in the world, the most known organization <laughs> in the world, you think that you can feel safe here because they right. wouldn't dare do that, you know? Right. And um, and so and essentially I wasn't alone. I also am the type of woman who respects others to form their own opinion. So I didn't want to vent to the rookies or to the second years about the interview that I had had because then I'm misshaping their experience as a cheerleader. Right. And just because this happened to me doesn't mean that this is every cheerleader's story. You right. know, there's some cheerleaders 
that go through cheerleading five, six years, and it's extraordinary. And I can say, even after three years, it was extraordinary, and my joy was never taken from me. However, like my faith was tested, and the gates of hell were opened. And it's all a part of my testimony, though, so I'm thankful for it all. But to answer your question in short, um, I was battling this fight alone, and wow. it was it was very hard. Yeah. Uh, I just jump to the conclusion that this was mostly men you were sitting opposite and uh, you're already shaking your head. So (laughs) in a sense, it was both men and women who, uh, who, who in a sense were locking you in a certain kind of box, which Mm -hmm. just did not feel right for you. And Mm -hmm. so in a sense, this is, we shouldn't assume that this is all about a bunch of male chauvinist pigs with right. very outdated ideas about what what women should be and what women should do. It's, it's the more opposite. Com- okay. Yeah, it's it's misogamy. It's it's just women hating women. Um, it's also history repeating itself. You know, the culture of NFL cheerleading. I was kind of joking with Neil earlier how I'm pretty sure we know more about Russia than we do about NFL cheerleading, and it's because these women have been gaslighted and silenced and. The fear has been put in them that you are only here to be seen and never heard. Mm. And if you speak up, you are 100% replaceable, and all we need is a pretty face and a uniform. Wow. And is that something that's implied, or are there ways in which you are even told that rather directly? Oh, it is boldly directly spoken in front of your face. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you lodged a lawsuit uh, against the Dolphins, and, of course, n- none of your fellow cheerleaders, of course, joined you in that. Do you have a sense of what their feeling was about that? I mean, were some of them, in a sense, aligned with you in spirit, mm-hmm. if not actually joining you in the lawsuit? Right. And were others, in a sense, more antagonistic or, or worried or resentful mm-hmm. about what you had done? Right. Well, a few things on this. One, it it was really hard for me to make the decision to have a lawsuit because in you know just my heart i didn't want it to come across as revenge or hate mm. and i wanted you know a lawsuit in my mind it was like does a lawsuit equal hate and mm. am i really showing love and forgiveness through a lawsuit but at the same time if i don't will i ever make a change and can i make a difference and so it took a lot of prayer and time with god to ultimately come to the decision to have a lawsuit. And I like to rephrase what you said, which is I wasn't fighting against the NFL. I was fighting for the women Mm. in the NFL. And that's how I like to phrase it because I'm not against cheerleaders and I'm not against the NFL. We all make mistakes. And maybe I'm a softie on this and I need a little bit of a backbone, but I'm just for hope and let's move forward with this and let's just show up and fix our mistakes. So history needs to stop repeating itself, basically, and the silence needs to end. So my fellow cheerleaders, um, when I was a rookie, I remember a lawsuit breaking out and my director said immediately go on your social media platforms and talk about how much you love our team and make us look good and Mm. so already as a rookie you are being trained as a woman to be against other women fighting to make a change wow in the exact environment that you are in Mm. so there's no wonder you know that i didn't have support with my fellow teammates when that is the very thing we're trained to do right and like neil said earlier when we were talking privately you know you have to deprogram and unlearn everything that you once learned as a survival mechanism once Mm. you leave that team and you know it serves you well when you're on that team 
but then you finally break free and you you uncage yourself and now you're a woman to build up who women should be and who we can be if we only support one another and come together as a team. Last quick question. You mm-hmm. must be, I should think, really thrilled that uh, this play has been written that tells this story. I mean, what did it feel like to learn about this project mm-hmm. and to ultimately be a part of it? Yeah, well, it was it was a journey of my faith. And, you know, it was me speaking out was just me being obedient to Christ and using my voice was hard. My, my voice shook, my kneecap shook, my hands were sweaty. And at a time where I felt like I was battling this alone and maybe I had lost, you know, because not much change was being made and I wasn't getting much support. It was people like Neil and Laura who reached out to me and they're like, you know, I'm tearing up because they're these walking angels Mm. who show me that God's not finished yet and that these women's stories matter and these lives matter and they're doing the heart of the project and they're speaking Hmm. it into existence and keeping the conversation going. So to know that there is a story being told for all of these women fighting to make a better future for her, for that little girl that wants to be a cheerleader, I'm so thankful, Hmm. Um, beyond thankful. Beautifully said. Kristen Ann Ware is at Carthage uh, on hand for the performances both tonight and tomorrow night and for the talk back that I mm-hmm. assume will occur after the performance. Neil Sharnick, for people who want to attend either tonight or tomorrow night, what do they do? Uh, well, you can get tickets in advance by visiting carthage.edu slash tickets, or uh, tickets will be available at the door for either performance. They're at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, so please come out and uh, hear these stories. And not only Kristen Ann's is told, but uh, other cheerleaders, as we mentioned, who've already been to campus um, to uh, to see this play last weekend, um, find out uh, and learn for yourself uh, what's happening in the ranks of NFL cheerleaders. And um, we, you know, it's important we see this really as as a microcosm of culture, right? Roger Goodell has said it about the NFL when they've been dealing with problems. We're we're our culture in microcosm. There's uh, it shouldn't surprise us then that we see difficulties in gender discrimination and these things because uh, that's our culture so um, come on out uh, learn things you never knew both about uh, the world ranks and world of NFL cheerleading but some of those things you you do know about our uh, about our world see um, um, how um, how relevant this play is even if your uh, your life never uh, in any other way uh, encounters or interacts with the world of professional cheerleading there's just um, there's a lot here. It's a story for all of us. Right. Neil Sharnick is the director of this production of this brand new play by your, Laura Shellhart called The Handbook and uh, Kristen Ann Ware, our very special guest. Thank you to both of you for being part of The Morning Show today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. And this portion of Friday's Morning Show is devoted to a concert that's going to be played this Sunday afternoon by the Carthage Philharmonic under the direction of Dr. Ed Kawakami. It's a concert that is going to be devoted entirely to the music of women composers, including one Amy Beach, or Mrs. H.H.A. Beach, as she preferred to be known professionally. And here is a portion of the third movement of her symphony in E minor, the Gaelic Symphony. Uh, This is music that will be played on Sunday afternoon's concert. 
Dirty and lush music by uh, Amy Beach from her her symphony uh, in E minor known as the Gaelic Symphony. Uh, and uh, with me in WGTD studios to talk about uh, this music and some other things that are scheduled for Sunday afternoon's concert by the Carthage Philharmonic is Dr. Ed Kawakami, who is uh, their conductor. Welcome back to The Morning Show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me again. Good to have you here. So you have put together a program uh, for Sunday afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock in Siebert Chapel, which is devoted to the music of three women composers. And probably uh, most of our listeners can guess why you've done that, but maybe in your own words you can explain why you wanted to put together this program in this way. Sure. I've wanted to to do a program of this nature for a while. Uh, the the impetus behind it, or the the license to do it, is of course of course Carthage is celebrating 150 years of women at Carthage and celebrating the contributions and and the fact that Carthage was forward enough looking uh, a century and a half ago to admit women to its roles, and 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 to be able to to have the um, the the swift kick to to program this repertoire was 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 welcome to me. So when you think about doing something like that, you have, in a sense, uh, kind of a narrow scope, but a, actually a much wider scope of possibilities than probably most people would uh, ever even imagine. What kind of went into your thought process in terms of of uh, who to lift up in this particular concert and what repertoire to do? Well, it, it, that's, that's a pretty difficult question. Uh, women were not supposed to be composers not supposed to be uh, artistic or, or in the professional realm until relatively recently and that we have a smaller canon of composers and compositions that that are available to us as of recent there have been uh, a lot more uh, compositions by female composers and, and that's been fantastic but some of those works are work composed and uh, commissioned by by high-level professional orchestras, so the repertoire tends to be quite challenging. Mm. So looking at that and, and thinking about some of the, the known pieces, the, the Amy Beach has been on the in the on-deck circle for quite a while for me, uh, and, and having this as an opportunity to showcase her work has been, uh, was, was why, what led me to, to pick her. Um, I also wanted to showcase a female guest artist, and, and of course we're having Dr. Debbie Maslowski solo with us. Uh, she's the piano faculty, one of the piano, piano faculty members at Carthage, uh, and uh, I asked her to pick a piece uh, by a female composer that she wanted to perform, and she found this work by Emma Lou Diemer, uh, written in 1992-ish, uh, and it's won uh, a number of awards, so she'll be performing that. I've also invited a guest conductor, so I, I actually don't get to to conduct the beach uh, mm. on Sunday's concert, and, and it's uh, it's it's a little bit of a actually quite a bit of regret because it's <laughs> it's been such a joy to prepare this piece, and it's a wonderful piece. Uh, so uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Alexandra D, 
who's now at Indian University of Pennsylvania, will be flying in tomorrow, and, and she'll get a, two rehearsals with the Carthage Philharmonic, and she'll be performing the beach with them. Wow. Before we get to uh, this repertoire and these mm-hmm. composers and talk a little further, I had a conversation yesterday with one of our colleagues, Dr. James Ripley, uh, just about uh, Sunday's concert and uh, this guest uh, conductor coming in. And it reminded me that uh, I happened to chair two consecutive search committees for the Kenosha Symphony. Mm. And in the first, they hired uh, Elizabeth Schultz to be their conductor the first time the Kenosha Symphony had ever had a woman com- a conductor. And the, s- the next search, when uh, she, uh, she left, uh, resulted in the hiring of Miriam Burns, mm-hmm. who was the second mm-hmm, <laughs> female mm-hmm. to be a conductor of the Kenosha Symphony. And I was reflecting on the fact that when we ultimately made the choice for Elizabeth Schultz, it felt quite noteworthy uh, to hire a woman for that position. And I don't think there was any beyond the, anybody on the committee who was in any way reluctant to do so, but it felt like something big we were doing. And it's just interesting to think about how that that next search, which was uh, maybe 10 years later, mm-hmm. it didn't feel noteworthy at all. It it scarcely merited mention in a sense. It was uh, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if that's your sense, at least in terms of the orchestra world, which you know a whole lot better than I do, uh, if we are seeing more and more uh, diversity when it comes to who is on the podium. I believe so. I think there's a, a distinct thought to to be inclusive of women uh, on the podium. Um, but I always bring this up in my class. Uh, the Vienna Philharmonic, Vienna Philharmonic, of course, one of the top orchestras in the world, the, perhaps the top orchestra in the world, and it's uh, not disputed by anyone that, that they are the, f- the, the, the standard bearer for orchestras. They didn't uh, admit women into their permanent ranks until 1997. And uh, it was through much social pressure. The Berlin Philharmonic was 1982 when they first admitted the uh, women to, to, to their professional ranks. Uh, so it's just it's, to play, not just, even to conduct, just not, to play. Yep, yep. So it's it's still it's still um, it's still a relatively new thing. And when I go to conferences with uh, college orchestra directors, uh, the vast majority are men. Uh, but there's a growing minority of women, uh, which which doesn't seem to be uh, th- there's no issue about it. Uh, there's talk about including more women. There were there were several sessions at the last conference I was at uh, highlighting and and bringing up uh, female composers that that ought to be uh, looked at and performed. And there's there's so many wonderful composers out there. Uh, Unfortunately, there's it, there's so many. It's it's hard to get to, and it, you know it's it's it, the compositions haven't gone through the filter of time. So I don't <laughs> have the luxury of just going to the closet and pulling out the 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 well known piece like with the Amy Beach, which is becoming part of the standard canon. Hmm. By the way, the last time I was at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, it was for Jake Hagee's Dead Man Walking, and the conductor on the podium was a woman, and I did a little studying. That's the second time, I think, that the Lyric Opera has had uh, a woman on the on the podium. So there are ways in which the opera world is maybe uh, slow to catch up, but uh, it's good to see talented people on the on the podium, whoever they are. Absolutely, absolutely. But the fact that it's only been the second one means that there's a lot of 
A lot of ground to make up. You bet. Absolutely. That's exactly the point. We're speaking today with Dr. Ed Kawakami, who is a conductor of the Carthage Philharmonic, and they have a concert at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon in Siebert Chapel, a concert free and open to the public, which is devoted to the music of three different women composers during this year in which we are celebrating the uh, centennial of women's suffrage here in the United States and for Carthage specifically, 150 years that women have been studying at Carthage. So for a couple of different reasons, this concert makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, so let's talk about, first of all, the, the most familiar of the three com- composers, at least familiar to me, sure. and that would be Amy Beach or Mrs. H.H.A. Beach. Mm-hmm. What do you want to share with our listeners about her really intriguing story? Well, she was a child prodigy, uh, Supposedly, and 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 uh, this might be apocryphal, but it's okay. We'll 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 lean into the the, the legend of Amy Beach. Uh, she was singing uh, songs by the age of one and uh, plucking out tunes on the piano by age two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she was she was concertizing, and she was offered um, management uh, and representation, but her parents declined. Uh, when she was a teenager, they didn't want her mm. concertizing around the country. Mm. Uh, she was uh, homegrown talent. She is credited as being the the first composer uh, to succeed without European uh, a European lineage of of studying. So she studied mm. here in the states, and 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 granted her some of her teachers had a European lineage, so that that she did receive some some European training. Uh, by proxy, but mm. not she didn't go and study in Europe. Uh, she uh, was an autodidact because her parents wouldn't allow her to go study at a conservatory. Uh, her husband, uh, who was almost 20 years her senior, mm. uh, insisted that she not concertize and that she not go study and that she not teach from the home. She was limited to two concerts a year, I believe, and mm. her the proceeds from her concerts had to, to be donated to charity, and and by the way, she was uh, she was a pianist as well as a composer. Uh, she's credited as H H A Beach, Mrs. H H A Beach, and the H H A is of course her husband's name. Hmm. Uh, when her husband passed, she reclaimed her name, Amy Beach, uh, but she she still took the professional moniker of H H A Beach. I believe probably for consistency's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, her work is is phenomenal. Uh, I, when I was picking this piece, I, I knew of it. I knew of it in passing. But the more we worked on it, the more I fell in love with it. it it's absolutely stunning work. It's, it's, uh, it's Mahler and, and Dvorak and uh, it just so absolutely gorgeous. Late, late romantic, very tonal, very accessible. Uh, you, you come away from the concert hall singing the tunes. Mm. And my understanding is that this work was not just kind of a one-shot wonder in terms of getting played. It was played by all kinds of major symphonies of the day, and it's just kind of incredible to think about that. I mean, more than a century ago, Mm -hmm. uh, a symphony by a woman composer getting that kind of circulation being received as enthusiastically as this piece was. I mean, that's that's just an amazing story in and of itself. It is pretty fantastic. It was premiered by the Boston Symphony in 1896 when it was composed. I, I, I'm not sure if she uh, it was commissioned by them 
I'll have to do a little digging. But uh, yeah, it was performed by uh, the Boston Symphony, and it was well received by critics and audience members. And it was it was continued uh, to 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 be performed for a number of years. And then it it kind of fell. It got a little dusty for a while. And then as recently, a lot of pieces from that time did. I mean, the the late romantic things that were not particularly revolutionary mm-hmm, in nature, mm-hmm. a lot of those got neglected for a long, long time then. So Yeah, I, I think there's a sense that perhaps it was a little maudlin, a little mm. saccharine perhaps, but now in, in, a, in a fresh light, uh, when there isn't the specter of the, those other massive late romantic composers, and it stands on its own, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic work. It's it just inspiring the last movement is big it's massive it's it's uh it's it's bold and then the the third movement is just so absolutely lush Mm. very good Mm -hmm. we'll play just a little more of the gaelic symphony as we uh finish out again that this is one of the pieces being played sunday afternoon at the uh, one o'clock concert by the uh, carthage philharmonic at siebert chapel uh, two movements of the Uh, Gaelic Symphony of Amy Beach. I want to put in a little plug, by the way, for another work by her that I love, her piano concerto in A minor, which is such a gorgeous piece. Uh, But, uh, or I'm not, no, I have the wrong, I think I have the wrong, um, I have the wrong key. But uh, really nice piece as well, and lots of other neat things by Amy Beach. She is a treasure of American Mm -hmm. music that we we need to be uh, exploring more. Uh, Another uh, composer on the program I had never heard of. I, I mean, when I saw the name on the poster, I didn't recognize it. And then I was part of a concert not long ago uh, as the accompanist, actually, and I had to play uh, three of her vocal pieces. Oh. Um, so uh, the, the piece. <laughs> what coincidence? Yeah. So this is the piece that Deborah Maslowski is playing. And what is the composer's name again? Emma Lou Deemer. Yes, Emma Lou Deemer. Mm-hmm. So I played three madrigals for, for, for choir, and they were absolutely delightful pieces. I absolutely loved them. So tell us more about uh, what Deborah Maslowski is going to be playing. Uh, it's the Concerto in One Movement for Piano. Uh, it's. Where the beach is lush and 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 gorgeous and and thick in texture, the uh, the deemer is angular and it's it's very twenty twentieth century late twentieth century and that is very rhythmically driven. Uh, it's a fantastic piece. It's it's virtuosic for Dr. Maslowski. She's doing a phenomenal job with it and it's it's just such a pleasure to work with her. Uh, the the students every time we tackle a new piece. Uh, when I first arrived on the Carthage campus, it, it was a steady diet of the standard canon, the Beethovens, the Bachs, the mm. Mozarts, and the Haydns. And to, to understand the vernacular, uh, each sure. composer, of course, as you know, has, has their own vernacular. And once you understand that vernacular, it's you, you can perform it and understand it. You, you know, when, when I watch... Uh, when I watch a Shakespeare play, it takes me about half the play to, <laughs> to, to stop translating and just to understand natively. And I think that's the same way with those, those uh, masters. Is mm. Once you have that sense of how uh, uh, a cadential structure ought to be played in Mozart, it becomes easy. There, there's less teaching that I have to do. Right. It, it becomes part of the institutional memory. You kind of know the gestures, <clears throat> yeah. Right. Uh, with the the beach and and particularly the deemer, we had to learn an, a new vocabulary, a mm. new dialect. Uh, 
uh, and and the dialects are so vastly different. And uh, in the with 20th century compositions, more complex and more difficult metric structures begin to be introduced, as well as more complex harmonic structures. Dissonance is part becomes part of the language, yeah. whereas back in the the late 19th century, dissonance was passing. It was yeah. on the way to consonants, right. whereas now you sit on the dissonance yeah. and create more tension. Yeah. And it, luxuriate. Yeah, it. luxuriate and lean into it and, and allow that crunchiness to, to become part of the, the norm. Uh, and to teach that was rather interesting, and, and it made for a fantastic journey for them. Uh, about a week or two ago, it really clicked for them, and they really mm. started to understand it, and they started to lean into it. And, and and mixed meter and odd meters are, are difficult when when they haven't been worked on and it's been a while since I've worked in that medium as well so it's it's been fantastic it's been a great journey uh, it's a it's a really neat piece the more we get into the inside of it and live from the inside out uh, the more I really appreciate the genius of Emma Lou Deemer cool yeah the, I uh, as I said I my only exposure to her is playing these three pieces that the Bell Ensemble performed on their last concert. And then aside from that, one day when we came to, when I came to Siebert for opera workshop, mm -hmm. uh, Professor Maslowski was at the Steinway practicing mm -hmm. uh, some of this piece. And I, I just found it myself kind of captivated. I wondered, what in the world is this? Yeah. It just sounded so fresh and inviting. Right. And mm -hmm. so I'm excited to hear the whole the whole product that is uh, piano part and orchestral accompaniment uh, that's oh, going to be it's, exciting. it's it's really neat it's energizing it's a uh, it's almost hypnotic the the mm. rhythmic odd meters keep you it, it's um it's so irregular that it becomes somewhat mesmerizing yeah and who is the third composer on the program yukiko nishimura she's a japanese composer uh i i wanted to pl program something else on the 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 concert that uh, we have such difficult works, uh, orally and um, and also for the performer, that I wanted to program something that was um, kind of a palate cleanser, if you will. It, it just is just a pretty tune. It's accessible. It's it makes sense. Hmm. Um, it still has its own challenges, uh, but it's a neat piece. And it was also a great opportunity. There's a there's a third guest on the program. So we have Dr. Maslowski, uh, who's on the Carthage faculty. I'm, uh, we're flying in a guest conductor, Dr. Alexandra D, to conduct the beach. Uh, and I'll be conducting the, the Deemer. And, uh, and our guest third guest conductor is a uh, Carthage grad. Uh, who teaches in Kenosha Unified, Angela Barone, wh oh. wh whom I know you know. Yeah. Uh, she graduated four years ago, I believe, and I uh, I invited her in to conduct this the the Nishimura piece. Ah. Uh, so and she's doing a fantastic job, and she's the the first time she got up there and conducted, she had a huge smile on her face. Mm. Such a just such a pretty piece. Wow, very good. So we have a lot to look forward to with this uh, program that's coming up on uh, on Sunday afternoon, and it sounds like these are pieces that are rather rarely heard mm -hmm. and uh, and and well worth enjoying. So that concert is one o'clock uh, uh, Sunday afternoon in Seabird Chapel. The concert is free and open to the public and uh, this is the kind of rare opportunity that should not be uh, lightly dismissed. It's a chance to hear three really uh, 
wonderful pieces by three very, very gifted women composers with some special guests, artists uh, in, in the mix. And uh, putting it all together, uh, Dr. Uh, Ed Kawakami, I appreciate you making time in your busy schedule to tell us about Sunday afternoon's concert. Uh, I appreciate you bringing me in. Thank you so much.